Great job. Amen. Great job, Madison. Okay, choir, if you make your way down to your seats. Oh, what a blessing. You can get your Bibles out and open to the book of Nehemiah. So you can find uh, chapter 2 on page 549. 549 in the Pew Bible in front of you, or you can just open to the middle, go to the book of Psalms, back up through Job, Esther, and you'll come to Nehemiah. Okay? Nehemiah. The sermon series in Nehemiah is called Sea of Faces. And the reason that I chose to call this study Sea of Faces is because the world in which we live in, and I mean the whole world, although to us it only seems like it's the culture in which we live in, but believe me, if you travel around the world, the whole world is the same in the sense that the motivation or desire of the world is to make you feel as insignificant as possible, as unqualified, as useless, as to keep you stationary and defeated. And so in our lives, what happens is we feel like we're just uh, an ordinary person, just doing our little ordinary meaningless things, and God begins to seem very distant, and then Satan accomplishes his purpose in our life by derailing us away from the great reality that God is doing an amazing work on this earth, and He does His work through ordinary people. And He delights. Scripture is the testimony of a God who delights to pluck ordinary people out of a sea of faces all the time and do extraordinary things. And every single person who's redeemed by the blood of Christ has been redeemed for something. That that wasn't done just for uh, you or me to be able to know that we're going to go to heaven, that if that were the case, then the moment we got saved, we would be in heaven. But we're here redeemed for a reason and a purpose, and God has a purpose in all of this. And Nehemiah is a, a beautiful place for us to begin to explore what that purpose is, what God's vision for this world is, and then what is our personal uh, involvement, what's the mission that God's called us to as individuals within the context of what he's doing. And so let's pray and ask God to help us as we study this morning, and then we'll jump right into Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a God who hears. And we thank you for, uh, Lord, that you hear us when we cry out to you. And, Lord, you know all of the details and circumstances of our life. And, Father, we also know that so many times in this life, if we're not careful that we will be deceived into believing that we are just a nobody in a sea of faces. So, Father God, thank you for what you will teach us this morning. We thank you for your scripture, your perfect and errant gift to us. And, Father God, we pray that you'd use it this morning in our lives by giving us ears to hear and then allowing our hearts to receive it, that it may change us. And, God, we give you the glory and the praise in advance for what you'll do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So it's about 445 B.C. We uh, sort of began this journey last week. Uh, the story began in the palace of Artaxerxes, who's the king of Persia. Persia is now the superpower, the great superpower of the world. And so Artaxerxes reigns over this Medo-Persian empire that spans all the way from Egypt to India. 
And uh, the king of Persia is the most powerful man on earth. And the people of God, the Israelites, have been taken captive first by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians, and so they've remained in captivity. And this has gone on for over a generation. And so now we've got a new generation of Israelites that are growing up under Persian rule who have never even been to their homeland. Nehemiah is one of these people. He's a slave to the king. And so he lives in the palace. He goes where the king goes. He's the cupbearer. That means that his job is to be there for the king, to sample the king's wine before the king drinks it, so that way the king knows that the wine's not poisonous. And so basically he's like the, the, the lab rat for the king. Now, it's, uh, he's a slave, and he, it's, it's tough to be a slave, but at the same time, if you're going to be a slave, this would be the position you'd want to have because at least you live in the palace, and obviously the king trusts him because you have to have trust for somebody who's your cupbearer, uh, and you also spend a lot of time around them. So uh, there's a, a bit of a, a relationship that grows there if a relationship can grow between a slave and a king. And so Nehemiah... This slave, he's, he's a man that wakes up as the book begins in chapter 1, I'm sure, just like every other day, thinks that this is just the way things are going to be for him, uh, and it's always going to be this way, and I'm sure that he totally assumes that he's going to live his life as the king's cupbearer until uh, either he messes up or someone tries to poison the king and he gets poisoned and died or he dies of old age. And that's pretty much what I'm sure he thought was going to happen. But then, as he's there in the capital city, he sees some brethren, some Hebrew brothers. And he asks them, how are things going back in Jerusalem? Because he knows that a delegation has been sent back to Jerusalem, and they've started to sort of rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the the Persians were very acclimating to that, and so they'd allowed the, the Hebrews to go back and start working. In fact, Ezra is already there in Jerusalem working, working on the temple as this is all taking place. And so he asks how things are going in Jerusalem, and he gets the report that they're not going very well. We see in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, that his friend said to him, the survivors who were left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. And so here he is, 800 miles away from Jerusalem, a place he's never been. But his heart breaks. The next verse says that, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And as the chapter 1 begins to close, we get to peer into what God's doing in Nehemiah's heart through this prayer that he begins to pray. And so last week we spent our time talking about this prayer and what it shows us about Nehemiah. But essentially what happens is as he prays, we begin to sense as we read his words that God's up to something amazing, that something's changing in him, that, that there's this vision that's being birthed in his heart, that he's beginning to see things as God sees them. And he knows, uh, he knows about God and he knows God's uh, he knows that, the, that his people are God's people and that God has not made them uh, his people for nothing, that there's a purpose in all of that. And he's uh, sure that this city being broken down is, is a great distress and should be to all the people of God. And so his heart 
just breaks apart as he gets a divine perspective, seeing things as God sees. Now, I want you to understand, Nehemiah is not chasing his own dreams. This isn't a person who's thinking, well, I know what I'll do to make everybody think well of me. I'll, I'll uh, start praying that I can go and rebuild the walls. Or this isn't about Nehemiah promoting his own uh, agenda or his own ideas. But it's about a man who begins to see things as God sees them. There's no other way to say it. It's what happens in his life. It's what happens in your life and my life when we are available to God and we begin to see things through the lens of his nature and character. And so in his prayer, he says in chapter 1, verse 10, now these are the servants of your people who, have, who you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You see, he's saying that, the, that my people, your people, they're your servants and you have redeemed them by your great hand. And the implication is, is that undoubtedly you, you did this for a reason. You didn't just, you didn't just redeem. You didn't, you didn't send Moses before Pharaoh. You didn't send the plagues and part the Red Sea. You didn't, you didn't walk with them and lead them through the wilderness for 40 years. You haven't gone through all the things you've gone through for nothing, that there's a purpose in all of this. And undoubtedly, there's meaning in it. And Nehemiah is connecting that. And he's realizing that, There's more to his life as one of God's children than just existing. And so we begin to sort of connect with what's going on in in, in Nehemiah's heart. And we too have been redeemed to be the people of God. And we need to look into this and we need, to, we need to examine the things that Nehemiah does and then examine our own hearts and realize that we too never operate as individual entities chasing our own agenda or vision. That that's not how we work. That's not how God works. We recognize that we have been bought with a price, that we've been called as God's special people, he calls us in the New Testament a chosen generation, and we've been set apart to be his ambassadors and to accomplish his mission. Now, I don't want you to just fly past it. I want you to stop for a moment and just reckon your heart up against the reality that God doesn't just give Nehemiah this individual, singular, disconnected vision. That's not how God works. He's calling Nehemiah to something, but what he's calling Nehemiah to is a people, He's calling Nehemiah to be a, a, a uniter of his people. He's calling Nehemiah as one of his people to his people to then accomplish what God has called his people to accomplish. God accomplishes his mission on this earth through people. Now, you have to just think for a moment about who this God is that we're talking about. Does he need any help rebuilding a silly wall? Of course he doesn't. We could just open our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, and the book of Nehemiah could have went something like this. There was a man named Nehemiah, and he was a slave, a cupbearer to the king. And one day, he decided he was going to use his vacation days to go visit his homeland in Jerusalem, 800 miles away that he's never been to. So he goes to Jerusalem, and lo and behold, the first morning he wakes up, and poof, there's walls. That's what God could have done. Or God could have just said, you know what? I'm just going to make walls appear out of nothing so that everybody knows how amazing and powerful I am. He could have very easily done that, but that's not how God works. 
God accomplishes his mission through people. You see, that's why for you and for me, God's heart for each and every one of us is to be meaningfully involved in a local faith family, to be a part, a, a part of the unifying nature of what God's doing in his church in this world, that his will for each of us is to be serving in a local church, to be loving in a local church, to be participating in a local church, to be giving in a local church, to be strengthened by a local church, to be encouraged through a local church. God's designed his body. He's designed it such that progress in his kingdom comes through the community of his people. That's his design. And so what happens is you would think, well, wow, that's amazing, that's, which it is. But you look around the landscape today, and we don't necessarily see that. We don't see a lot of churches that are on fire for God's vision for the world. We don't see a lot of churches that exist with a very clear and purposeful mission. Why is that? Well, you see... Christians that have no vision have no mission. If you don't have a vision, you won't have a mission. And if you don't have a mission, here's what's going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is you're, you're, you're not going to be a person of prayer. Your prayers aren't going to have power because what are you praying about? You're just praying about nonsensical things. You don't, there's no mission in your heart. There's no drive in you. And so you're going to have this dull, lackluster, powerless prayer life. And what's going to happen to your lifestyle? Your lifestyle is going to become sloppy. Things are going to be able to come in and out of your life. You're not going to have clear and defined moral boundaries because, let's face it, what difference does it make? You don't have a mission. You're not on mission. You're not, you don't have a purpose. And so you just sort of figure, well, who cares? No one's really paying attention anyway. And you just sort of blend into mediocrity. And then what happens? Eventually, Christians that have no mission get bored. And when they get bored, that's when the real trouble starts. Because a bunch of bored people inevitably become critical and negative. The last thing bored people want to do is see somebody who's on fire for God. The last thing bored, negative, critical Christians want to do is sacrifice for themselves for the better of somebody else that they don't even know or may never meet. And so what happens is churches begin to fizzle out, fade away. And so it's really no wonder that thousands upon thousands of churches, just like this church, will close their doors this year for the very last time. They'll have their last little service with their last few people. And that'll be the end of the road. Now, has God failed? No. But this is what happens when people don't have vision. This is why there's got to be something that wakes you up in the morning. There's got to be a mission in your heart that, that drives you. Something that, that propels you through whatever circumstances you face. That makes every day valuable and worth living in. And whatever comes in and out of your life meaningful. And when you drop to your knees that it's not just humdrum, you know, God help me, bless me, prosper me. But there's something in your heart. There's a burden in your heart that's gripped you, that drives you to make a difference in where you are. 
that you understand that it's not just an accident that you happen to be the very person that you are with the occupation that you have that lives in the neighborhood that you live in, that all of these little sequences in your life are there for a reason and a purpose, and God's desire is to use you. He did not redeem you for you to get bored. Ask yourself this question. Have you ever met somebody who sees the church as an institution that's designed to meet their needs? Have you ever had the painful experience of having a conversation with somebody and it becomes crystal clear that they think that a church exists to care for them and their family? The only thing they talk about is what they can get out of it, of all the things that it's going to do for them. There's no concept of what the real mission of the church is. In other words... Do we see ourselves as part of a church that's here to serve us, or do we see ourselves as part of an army that's here to serve God? That's the question. And I think we see ourselves as part of an army that's here to serve God. And I think Nehemiah has a lot to say to this specific group of people. Now, When our hearts are gripped in a very unique and special way by God, when he gives us an opportunity to see the world through his eyes and see what he intends and what he desires and what are his kingdom priorities and not our own, life begins to change. Things start getting exciting. I'm not saying that it's not a little scary at times. I'm not saying that a lot of times you you learn the, the true and real meaning of walking by faith and not by sight. But it's exciting nonetheless because you know the God of the universe is the one leading the way. And here's what happens. A people on a mission, they have staying power. They don't, it's not just some flippant fly-by-night thing. It's not just this one week and that another week. They don't just jump from one thing to the other, but they hunker down. They, they, they settle in for the long haul, and they just begin to, to, to wait for God to direct them forward because they know they can't do it without Him, no matter how long that takes. Now, let's look at what Nehemiah does. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass... In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when he was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, the first thing I want you to understand, as I told you last time, the month of Nisan, that's the winter months, that's December. I mean, that's uh, the springtime. But if you remember what happened back in chapter 1, verse 1, we found out that Nehemiah had this conversation in Chislev. It says, now the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, came to pass in the month of Chislev. That's December. Now we're in March. Four months have passed. And so the last thing we knew was Nehemiah was fasting and praying. And then four months later, the story picks up, which means Nehemiah has been waiting for four months. He's been fasting and praying for four months. He hasn't been lollygagging around. He hasn't been just, you know, giving up and going on to 10 other things, but he is waiting for God. He's, he's waiting by praying and by fasting, hoping and wondering, God, 
Are you going to use me? Are you going to... Are you going to Grant me the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing. You see, he doesn't know the answer to those questions. He just has this great burden, and so he prays and waits on God. You know, he, he didn't do a lot of things that people do today in situations like this. I thought about, now, what would happen commonly to somebody in the United States of America who felt like they were supposed to do something? Well, they would have just took the bull by the horns. They would have packed up and, and maybe moved to Jerusalem. You know, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He waited until God confirmed his, his, his plan and his path. You know, he's waiting for God to move on his behalf. He was waiting for God to do something to reveal to him that it was God's will for him to go forward. In other words, what he waited for was God to do something that he couldn't do himself. He could do a lot of things. But why would you do a lot of things when you're not sure that God wants you to do anything? What you do is you wait until God confirms his word for you. What Nehemiah does for four months is he waits on confirmation. You see, God always confirms his word, always. And so he waits. Now, look at what happens in the latter part of verse 1 now. I had never been sad in the the king's presence before. Verse 2, therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, Nehemiah, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart, the king says. Now, Nehemiah, as I've already said, it's not like he had his own agenda. I mean, at this point, he's not certain if God's going to use him. And if God uses him, he doesn't know how God's going to use him. He just has a burden, and he's waiting for God to confirm what God's going to do. Now, for four months... He's been in front of the king every single day. It's not like they don't see each other for every day. And so you would think that Nehemiah's face would be less sad four months later than it was maybe a few days after all this began. And so what it tells me is that Nehemiah, yes, he had a broken heart, but he didn't go before the king with a a sad, pouty face like our kids do when they want us to know that they're not happy about something or try to get something from us. He was just trying to be the person that he's always been before the king because he wanted God to genuinely and authentically do something that he couldn't do on his own. He wanted confirmation that God was leading him to do this. And so therefore, he went to work every day just like he always had. He did everything the way he needed to do it. And then on this particular day, God grants the king the ability to see the countenance of Nehemiah, that his heart is broken. And so, things begin to move. But I don't want us to just jump over this point. I want us to spend just a moment and consider this issue of God confirming His Word in our life. You see, without waiting for confirmation, what happens if we don't wait for God? What happens when we run ahead of God? Well, here's what happens. We then begin to read God into every circumstance. And that is a very, very dangerous thing to do. You know people who try to attribute or or put God in the midst of every single circumstance they're in. Now, in a sense, theologically, he is sovereign and in every circumstance. But the point I'm making is that when people start saying, well, this happened, so it must be God, or that happened, so it must be God, or this or that or whatever, 
that's a disaster, I want you to know. That is an absolute disaster. That's the person who meets this guy or this girl, and by some strange set of circumstances, they end up getting to know each other, and they start dating each other, and things start working out for them, and, you know, you, you talk to them, and they say, well, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just miraculous the way God put us together that I happen to have the same class that he had, or, you know, we bumped into each other, and then we met each other, and, and so God must be in the midst of it because we're just such a perfect match, and we just fit together perfectly, and everything's just perfect. I mean, I know he's not a Christian. I know she's not a Christian, but everything else is so perfect that it, it must be God. I want you to listen very closely to what I'm about to say. God will never, ever lead you contrary to his word. Never. If there's a principle in scripture that says you go left, he will never lead you right. Never. But you see, we get ahead of God. We get impatient. You see, we say things like, well, I know it's God's will for me to get married. And so then we take that. Well, God hasn't confirmed that. Well, how does he confirm it? He sends you the right person. But no, you don't wait on that, so you go get your own person. And you start manipulating things around your way. And then you know what the Bible says, but we're going to do this anyway. And it just seems so good, and it feels so right. And You remember Jonah? The prophet Jonah? The book of Jonah opens. Chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Go to Nineveh. And so what happens? Jonah walks down to the port. The very next verse says he walks down, and lo and behold, there's a boat going to Tarshish. Well, it must be God. I mean, I just went down there. I mean, I thought I was going to Nineveh, but I went down there, and there happened to be a boat right there just packing up, ready to go, go to Tarshish. So it must be God's will for me to go to Tarshish. So he, he gets on the boat and goes the opposite direction. Listen, the enemy is an expert at circumstances. He's an expert that every single time that God calls somebody to do something, the enemy begins organizing circumstances around them to derail them, to discourage them, and to move them in exactly the opposite direction. But if God said, go to Nineveh, he's never going to lead you anywhere but Nineveh. But Jonah wouldn't see that because he wouldn't wait for God to confirm it. He just started doing things in his own strength and his own will. But thanks be to God that he always has a storm. Amen. See, he always has a storm and he always has a fish. And the question is, how long will it take us in the fish before we come to our senses and realize, wait a second, this isn't God's will for me. This isn't God's intention for me. And when we come to ourselves, God spits us back up on the beach, cleans us up, puts us on our way, and sends us on to Nineveh. You see, you don't want to be a person 
that's reading God into every one of your circumstances. You want to be a person that's waiting for God to confirm the things that he's told you to do. Now, the danger in what I just said is that there's some people who just wait forever and never do anything. But the caution is, and what Nehemiah teaches us, is that four months of praying and pleading for God to move on his behalf yield a moment. A moment. You see, so many people today are running from God. They're running from what God has for them. They're running from the things that God's called them to do. There may be some men in this room that are running from God's call on their life to be a husband or be a father. I mean, you fill the, the physical position, but spiritually you just given up, dropped the ball. Maybe you're running this morning from your place of service or your use of your giftedness. Maybe you're running from what God wants to do with you at your job. Undoubtedly, there's probably some of you in here this morning and you're running from God's call on your life to be one of His children. And do you know why we run? We don't run from the what. We run from the how. Where, where vision and mission break down is when our eyes get off the what and get on the how. You see, when God begins to lead you somewhere... The fact that you cannot understand how God is going to do this, how God could use you to accomplish this, how is God going to put all the pieces together, and then that's when we all just quit or we run away. Because what we want is a blueprint of exactly how God's going to do things. But God doesn't call you and me to get in, in the middle of a how. He calls us to just follow the what. What has God called us to do? And then be faithful to that and let him solve the how. You see, the thing is, is that just in the illustrations I just gave, I talk to men all the time. They know that God's called them to be the spiritual leader of their home, but they don't know how God could use them to do that. And they have all these reasons why they're, they're incapable of doing that, and so therefore they just run. Or, you know, God's put you in a place, uh, uh, he's gifted you so that he can use those gifts and you know that. You know what the Bible says about that, but you don't do that because you just don't know how. You just think, I just don't see how God could use me. I don't see how that could work out. I'm just not enough this or not enough that. And so you just don't do anything. People run from God's call in their life to be one of his children because they think, how can God save me? How? After everything I've done, after all the, the mess I've made in my life, I just don't see how all that can work out. And because they don't see how, they lose sight of the what. But that's not what happens to Nehemiah. See, he has this moment of confirmation. Look at what happens at the end of verse 2. So I became dreadfully afraid, and the king, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. That's a good way to start when you're about to have a conversation with somebody who could just have you beheaded in a second. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies in waste and its gates are burned by fire? And then the king said to me, 
Well, what do you request? You see his moment? Here's his moment. There's nothing he could do. There's no power that he has to make the king, the most powerful man on earth, ask him, what is your request? And yet here's the moment he finds himself in. A moment where God does what only God could do, and here we are. And so he prays. I'm sure he thought, Lord, help me. And then he said, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask you to send me to Judah, to the city of my master's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, well, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? Seems kind of repetitive to me, but that's what the king says. So it pleased the king to send me. And I sent him for a time. We find out later in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah is going to be gone for over a decade, 12 years. It's a long time. And the king sends him. Furthermore, verse 7, I said to the king, he's like, well, here we are. I'm in this God moment. God's opened this door, and so I'm going to walk fully through it. I mean, he wasn't sure if God was going to use him. He certainly didn't know how any of this was going to happen. But now the king says, well, what's your request? So he's laid it out there, and the king says, okay, I'll send you. Well, if you're going to send me, there's a couple things I'm going to need because I've been thinking about this. If God chooses to use me, here's some things I'm going to need. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they would permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams and for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. You know, Nehemiah, he'd really been thinking this through. You know, he hadn't presumed upon God. He hadn't said anything to anybody. But in his heart, he had begun to imagine, now, what's going to happen if God confirms this? What's this going to, what are the things I'm going to need? See, he's not answering the how. Make sure you understand that. There's no way, shape, or form he's answering the how. Nehemiah is not a builder. He's a cupbearer. He's, to our knowledge, never built anything in his life. He's never even been to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, no one in Jerusalem is going to know him. In other words, the probability of how this is going to happen is still a million miles away. But he understands the basic tenets of this process. I'm going to need to be able to get to Judah. In order to do that, I'm going to have to have letters from the king. And then when I get to where I'm going, I'm going to need supplies. So I'm going to need timber from the forest. And so he asks for it. And the king gives it to him. And so now, in this sort of pivotal moment and certainly in Nehemiah's life but in the history of God's people we're able to peer in and we're able to see God working and doing his miraculous will right before our very eyes you know I wonder I wonder what it would have been like if if just a week before this book opens if we would have had the opportunity to sit down and talk to Nehemiah, like if we would have just met him out in the, the square in Shushan, you know, he's on his lunch break from the palace and he's sitting out there on a bench and you stumble by and sit down next to him and you introduce yourself, hey, how you doing? And he says, hey, I'm Nehemiah. And you say, well, well what's your deal? And he said, well, I'm, 
I'm a Hebrew. Oh, so you're from the Babylonian captivity? Yes, that's correct. Um, and I've lived here all my life, and I work for the king. I'm his cupbearer. And so as soon as he said that, the next question would have been, well, well what's, like, what's it like? What's, what is Artaxerxes really like? What is it like on the inside of the palace? Most people probably never would have seen the things that Nehemiah had seen, and so they probably would have had all these questions. And Nehemiah would have said, well, I don't know. I mean, it's okay. I mean, yeah, I, I'm in the palace all the time, yeah. I'm standing next to the king, but it's not like we're hanging out. I mean, I'm a slave. I'm just there to make sure he doesn't die. That's my only job. And every single day, I wake up, and my job is to make sure that this king of some foreign country that has nothing to do with me, that has taken my people captive, doesn't die. And that's really not that great of a, of a, of a life. I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of slaves that have it a lot worse and they wish they were me, but let's face it. I don't think Nehemiah would have said, man, I am fulfilling my purpose in life. Let me tell you, I'm one of God's chosen people. And he has strategically put me as the king's cupbearer. He has aligned the circumstances of my life so that he can catapult me right into the midst of the mission that he has on this earth. No, he wouldn't have said that. He was just another person in a sea of faces just getting up every day. And going to work and just trying to get homework done and get the kids to bed and trying to pay the mortgage and trying to, you know, keep everybody happy and get to all the practices and just keep your boss happy and do whatever it is you got to do to just exist another day. And here we are, four months later, and the king of the greatest empire on earth is saying to this nobody slave well what do you need what is your burden what can i do to help you here's a good one what can i do to help you rebuild the place that we crushed because that's going to make a lot of sense yes the babylonians were the ones that originally smashed it down but then the jews went back and started putting it together once Cyrus came in, and so they started making a little progress. But then people began to complain. Other governors from other nations began to complain and said, you better not let them rebuild the walls because if they do, they're going to get powerful. And if they get powerful, they're going to try to rebel against you. And so they said, you know what, you're right. So they went out there and they smashed down the work that had been accomplished. And so here we are again. And Artaxerxes is like, yeah, I think I'll do that. I think I'll give you everything you need. I'll give you, you know, I think you have 12 years of vacation time, uh, you know, stored up. So why don't you just head on back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding your city? That, that makes perfect sense. I just wonder how many times in your life you've said no to God because it just didn't make any sense. That you just thought, well, that's just crazy. I just thought of how many times I stood before Artaxerxes in my life to lead me from a 25-year-old 
completely unchurched man who grew up in an atheist home to being your pastor? How many times? Was it the time when I was a brand new Christian and somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, would you consider teaching a Sunday school class? Yeah, that's brilliant. I'm just getting the cellophane off my first Bible and you want me to teach a Sunday school class. Let's, let's go with that idea. That, that's totally sensible. Oh, here's a better one. Junior high boys, that'll be good. That'll, that'll work fantastic since you never had a dad and don't have kids. So, yeah, let's do that. Let's try that one. That'll be good. That didn't make any sense. I remember telling Lisa, how am I going to, I mean, I was so hung up on the how. I didn't know any of these principles. I'm totally hung up on the how am I going to do it. It, But God was calling me to a what? He was going to handle the how. And so he put it together. Then there's that moment when we're sitting where this building is right here. It was a gravel parking lot. And our car was parked right out there by John Clark. And it was a Wednesday night. And I walked out of that building and walked over and was sitting in the car. And I was waiting on my wife. And she came and sat down. And I was so livid. She said, what is wrong with you? I said, these people are crazy. We might consider finding a new church. And she said, what's wrong with you? And I said, these nutsoids want me to teach on Wednesday night. Have they lost their ever-loving mind? How am I going to do that? I, don't, I mean, it takes me eight hours to teach a Sunday school class to some snot-nosed seventh graders. But I'm hung up on the how, not on the what. And so finally, I'm like, okay. Craig and Jenny were over there. We're teaching on the end times. And it was my Wednesday night to teach. And we had baptism that night. And in those days, the church was in this building, but the baptistry was in that building. And so all the adults would come over to, well, you know, it wasn't that all, but they'd all come over to the place and we'd have baptism. And then the students would leave their place and come over here to the adult place. And by the time all that got over with, there was like 15 minutes and that's my number. Did anybody tell me we were having baptism? No. I'm a wreck. Now I got 15 minutes. Now you know how much I do with a sh- short amount of time. So here I am. I'm going. I get done teaching on Revelation chapter 21, which I know nothing about, but I got the curriculum, so I'm teaching it. And everybody on the rotation comes up there and starts saying, well, here's our books. We're done. I'm like, what do you mean you're done? They're like, well, after that, you should do it. I'm like, after what? What are you talking about? I'm not doing it. You got me wrong. You are wrong. I'm not doing it. And I'm hunting down that. Where is the ship to Tarshish? Because I'm fixing to get on it. So the next week, Sunday morning... I'm hunting Tarshish. I walk in the sanctuary over there. I walk in the door. 
Same door that's here right now. A man I barely know, have never had a conversation with in my life, is leaning against the frame of the door on this side. I can still see exactly what he's wearing. I come walking in on Sunday morning, and he says, Tony, right? And I turn around, and I said, "Uh uh-huh. And he said, you know God's calling you in the ministry, don't you? Huh? Could you say that again? He said, you know that, don't you? And he just walked away. God confirms his word. But the how is still completely unknown. I mean, how you, God come, I mean, I own my own business. I can't just go in the ministry. I mean, it's kind of the middle of life here. By this point, most people are already through seminary. I mean, what are you doing? How is this going to work? It's not practical. It, it just doesn't make any sense. There's too many problems with all of this. You see, how many times do we, do we see something that just doesn't make sense to us and we just walk away because we don't understand the how? We just don't see how, how God's going to put all this together. God, God's responsibility is the how. That's his part of the equation. Our job is the what. You see, whatever, whatever things are in your past, whatever things are in your current situation, whatever things that that beat you down and convince you that you need to just keep, keep with the status quo. Like, don't, don't dream anything big and audacious. Don't be a part of anything great. Just sort of get through. Just kind of you know, just get through another, another day. Just, just try to survive along the way. The world is filled with those people. And I'm just telling you, I don't believe that's who God's called us to be. He's laid the foundation here for something amazing. And I believe that God's calling us to just believe in the what and leave the how up to him. Here's a slave boy. And in an instant, all the meaninglessness of his life suddenly begins to take shape. That he realizes... Oh, you mean growing up without a dad in an atheist home is what God's going to use to give you a burden to pour your life into teenagers? You mean that all the things that you hated about yourself are the things that God's actually going to use to propel you forward? You mean that the fact that it's Sanctity of Life Sunday, some of you are sitting in here knowing full well that you're still not put back together because someday in your past you had an abortion? You've been divorced and so you feel like God can't use you you've done this you've done that you've made this mistake you've made that mistake and what I'm saying Nehemiah is teaching us that it's all those circumstances in your past that God's aligning to propel you forward in his mission that he's way bigger than all of your mistakes and all of your sorrow and shame that God will use that to use you I've never seen God do anything great with anyone who hasn't been fully wounded. 
Because it's people that know what it's like to be broken that want to give their life to people who are broken. See, when you, when you come to that place in your life and you just say, God, I just want to see things the way you see them. I want to see my life the way you see it. When we stop looking at what we want to see or what we've been taught to see, but we start saying, God, I want to see it your way. That some of you are sitting in here this morning, you're thinking, why is it that everything I touch blows up? Why is it that every single thing I do just blows up in my face? I don't know. Maybe you're on the boat to Tarshish. God's calling you to Nineveh. And you keep doing what you think you ought to do the way you want to do it. If you just stop and wait and pray and fast and say, God, I want to see your way. Confirm your word in me, Lord. I'm not going to just start following my circumstances any which way. I'm not just going to walk through a door because the door is there and it's open. That doesn't mean you ought to walk through it. You need God to move on your behalf. You need God to open up a door and to show you that he opened it and you see you know that because the door you couldn't open yourself you know that because maybe it's a place you never naturally in yourself would have wanted to do or go I mean for me I don't I don't know how it is for you but what I know about God is that God's not really he's not really into all of my comforts he's not into all of my ideas about things see he knows that that our lives are are so much easier when we don't make any waves and everybody just likes us and we just sort of coast down the lazy river together and it's just it's just easy but God's not into that he wants you to swim upstream And every time you're swimming through a crowd of people, he knows they're going to be cussing at you. And they're going to be calling you a fool. And they're going to be saying you're wasting your time or you don't know what you're doing. But that's okay. As long as that's what God called me to do, he'll figure out the how I'm going to get upstream. Because that's how he works. And he takes all the things that we thought made us unusable And he leverages those very same things to use us to accomplish his mission. See, that's what the church is. That's what this whole thing is about. That's why we're here. That's why God's done everything he's done. He he hasn't built this place and assembled these people with all the gifts and abilities that we have and all the resources at our disposal. He hasn't done all this for us to just sit here and go, wow, aren't we great? He's done this so we say, wow, God, aren't you great? If you've already done this, imagine what else you can do with us. That we have one life to live. One life. That the sun's going to set on this Sunday. And you're never going to get it back. It's going to be the last one. And then there'll be another Sunday, maybe or maybe not. But you won't get this one back. That you only get one shot at the week that's coming. You only get one. And so what's getting you out of bed? What's driving you to go? 
Don't listen to the world. Because the world's going to lead you astray. The world's going to say, hey, if, you, if you, need, you need something great, you need great according to who? Because let me tell you what great is. There's some great people sitting in this room, and no one knows they're great. And certainly no one thinks they're great, except for maybe the kids that they teach every single week. That every single week they're sitting there teaching the Bible to kids. While everybody else is enjoying themselves, they're teaching. They're loving children so that their parents can be in church. Let me tell you something. That's a legacy. It's a legacy for some of you in this room to be able to say, you know what? My grandmother, my grandfather, I don't ever remember a time when they weren't serving. My whole entire life, growing up, every day of my life, I remember they were serving. They taught that little third grade Sunday school class. She went up there every Sunday and prepared her class and taught that lesson. And nobody paid any attention to what was going on. But God did. You see, to God, that's important. So if you're not careful, you're going to be running after some grand thing in the eyes of the world. You're going to get some mixed up idea about you need to see how God sees. You need to see that, you know what, your ministry may be something real simple. But you don't know how you're going to do it. You don't know how God could really use you to accomplish that. Perfect. You begin to pray and fast and let God confirm it. And some circumstance will come your way. Some event will confirm that God is in the midst of it. And then you'll know. He specializes. That's what he does. See, if bad things are just bad, there's nothing supernatural about that. For 25 years of my life, all the bad things in my life were just bad. And I thought I was just unlucky. I thought I just got a bad, you know, I just got a bad deck of cards, man. It was just a bad hand for me. Everybody else, you know, got a good, healthy, loving family, but not Tony. I don't say that anymore. Isn't it true about you? Isn't it true that there's things that for so long in your life you thought they were negatives and bad, and, and yet today you see God uses those things to propel you forward. Some of you are greatly successful in what you do. Why? Why? Do you think that you're successful so that you can just bestow all the blessings of that upon yourself? Do you think that's why God's doing it? Or is God doing that to use you To use what he's given you to to play your part in this extraordinary drama that's unfolding. But when you stand before the king, there won't be any conversation about how. The only conversation is going to be, well, here's what I called you to do. So let's talk about how that went. That's how the conversation is going to go. So I'm sitting in my office, getting ready for Wednesday night, just like every other Wednesday night. Mickey comes in, just like every other Wednesday. 
sits down, we talk about what's going on, we talk about, you know, the coming Sundays and what he's singing and what he's doing and how he's doing and this, that, and the other. He says, well, by the way, I want you to pray for me. I said, okay, what's going on? He said, well, this job came open in Alaska. I leaned back in my chair. I went, do what? (laughs) Say that again. He said, well, this job came open in Alaska, and I'm, you know, I don't know. Lois and I have been praying about applying for it. I said, you're going to have to give me more information. (laughs) Something's not adding up. Why would you want to go to Alaska? He said, well, I don't know. I feel like God might be sending us to Alaska. He said, it's a one in a million, but who knows? I don't know, but he might be doing that. And so I just want you to pray. And I said, okay, I'll pray. And so we talked about it for a few more minutes. And then, you know, that was the end of that. And I started praying. So then the next conversation we had, he said, well, I got to have an interview. And I said, okay. And he said, but I'm going to tell you in advance that Uh, You know, now that I've looked into this thing, I'm totally unqualified for the job. But keep praying. I said, I'm praying. Okay. So then the next conversation we have, he says, I said, hey, man, how'd the interview go? He said, horrible. He said, the weakest part of my whole resume is the only thing they wanted to talk about. He said, "It, it really went bad. I said, well, I'm sorry, man. But he said, keep praying. I said, okay, I'll keep praying. The next conversation we had, he said, uh, they called me back for a second interview. I said, oh, yeah? He said, yeah. I said, so now what? He goes, I don't know. I'm getting scared. I thought, well, that makes two of us. But keep praying. Okay, I'll keep praying. The next conversation. I got the job. And this is exactly what he said. There's a lot of this that doesn't make sense. Financially, doesn't really make sense. Family doesn't really make sense. Family doesn't really make sense. I think God's confirming that this is where he wants us to go. My first response was, you know, that's a dark place. I'm just trying to see things like God sees it. I'm going, the last thing I want is for you to move away, but... I want to see things like God sees. I'm thinking, well, there's not many gospel witnesses in Palmer, Alaska. And he's probably put a lot of other people before the king, but they ran away and got on a boat to Tarshish. But one family that's just a sea of faces said if that's the what you're calling us to then you figure out the how and we'll pack up and go 
Now I know. Some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, this is, this is bad. This isn't good. It's bad. And I'm saying to you, well, when bad things are bad, it doesn't take anything supernatural to show us that. But let's watch and see what God does. Because the last time I checked, the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world is the greatest moment that ever happened in the history of the world. That the slaughter of his innocent son on a cross by people he came to save that looked like the worst possible scenario, that how could God have ever intended to send his son to be slaughtered, that all the people that crucified him because they were blinded by trying to figure out the how, that he can't be God because what God would send his son to be slaughtered, that doesn't make any sense. They lost the what? They lost the what that God is a supernatural loving God who's willing to do whatever it takes to bring his people back into him. That... The what is, what looked initially like the worst thing that ever happened, is the center of all of our hope today. So verse 8 ends and says, And the king granted him all of my requests. He granted them to me according to the good hand. Of my God upon me. You see, when God's upon you, you don't need to worry about the how. You just move forward in the what. Here's what I know is true today. Because of the cross, normal, nobody, everyday, cupbearer slaves. can make audacious requests before the king of the universe whenever they want to. So I don't know where you're at this morning or maybe what you're running from. But I'm just telling you. Don't think for a second that God won't pluck you out of a sea of faces and use you to do something great in his eyes. He's redeemed you and he's brought you here. Why? Why? What is he doing? Will you begin to pray and fast that God would would do with us what he wants? That he would lead us not where we want to go but where he wants us to go. That every person in this fellowship who doesn't understand how God could do something would stop worrying about that and do what they already know God's called them to do. That we'd be a people that know God never leads us contrary to his word. He's always faithful to his word, always. So this morning, where are you? 